0: Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the LSE for this evening's uh, lecture. My name is Ed Richards. I'm the Chief Executive of Ofcom, the communications regulator in the UK, uh, and I'm a member of the Court of Governors here as well. Uh, And it's a a real honour for me this evening to be able to welcome Evgeny Morozov to LSE this evening. And Evgeny is going to give... Uh, a talk based on his new book, To Save Everything Click Here. Uh, m- many of you will know him from his many, many writings. Uh, his previous book, The Net Delusion, which I think was a, uh, a considerable work which made a lot of, uh, uh, del- uh, contributed to a lot of excellent debate around the issues which he picks up uh, in his new book. He's also uh, written for the New Republic, he was a visiting scholar at Stanford University. Uh, a Yahoo Fellow at the Institute for the Study of Diplomacy uh, and many, many uh, uh, other areas. He's widely published, uh, not just in the US, but uh, around the world, including in Italy, Spain, uh, and Germany. Uh, and he's written for The Economist, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, and many other British and American journals. Um, I have to say that, for the, particularly in this context, for, for those Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag uh, for tonight's event is uh, uh, LSE Morozov. Um, so uh, we're recording tonight, and it will be made available as a podcast uh, in due course on the LSE website, subject to no technical difficulties, which I'm sure there won't be. Um, now, as usual, uh, when Evgeny's finished, there'll be plenty of time for questions. Uh, uh, I think we want to very much encourage that this evening. Uh, but will you start by joining me in welcoming Evgeny to deliver his lecture, The Folly of Technological Solutionism? Evgeny.
1: Um, thank you so much for coming. Um, it's a pleasure to be back uh, with another book. Um, So those of you who've read uh, The Net Delusion probably know that one of my main uh, concerns is the way in which we tend to overestimate the liberating potential of uh, technological fixes for various social and political problems. So in the first book, I mostly studied uh, what technology can and cannot do in the context of authoritarian regimes, in the context of uh, dictatorships. And one of my uh, conclusions in that book was that um, there are clear limits as to what Silicon Valley can accomplish uh, in this context. Silicon Valley itself has all sorts of uh, business interests that do not necessarily favor uh, the public interest and that a lot of um, policymakers in Washington and Brussels and other capitals are probably not thinking uh, deep enough about their own growing reliance on Silicon Valley when it comes to promoting democracy. So um, having written that book, I uh, decided to um, shift my attention a little bit uh, from um, authoritarian regimes and um, dictatorships to uh, democracies. Uh, So to stop looking at China and and Russia and Iran and look a little bit closer at what's happening in Western Europe and America, but also try to understand it as part of a broader debate about the proper role of Silicon Valley and the proper role of technology in um, making our life better and solving some of the problems that um, exist around us. So what I uh, tried to do in this book was to understand how um, technologists and I would say increasingly policymakers who rely on those technologists uh, come to realize problems as problems, right? And it might sound like a somewhat bizarre statement because problems for most of us seem to be very obvious. They seem to exist out there in nature. It's problems like climate change or obesity and we just go and, and tackle them. But I think um, something um, else is happening, and that very uh, many issues that now are possible to be solved with the help of technology and with the help of apps uh, do not necessarily count as problems worth solving. so what I will focus on in my talk tonight is trying to unpack um, what I mean by this term solutionism, uh, what it actually means, uh, why do I think it 's dangerous, uh, how do I think um, Silicon Valley interacts with uh, the policymaking world and what are some of the dangers of it. And uh, I'll also try to deliver a bit of a uh, positive message at the end uh, because I do think that there are ways in which technologies can be used for uh, problem solving. It's just that it needs to be done in a somewhat different manner than uh, the manner in which Silicon Valley uh, tries to impose uh, on us and on policymakers. So um, one of the key, uh, I think, technological changes uh, that happened over the last uh, five, ten years um, have been the declining and rapidly decreasing costs and size of sensors. Uh, so pretty much uh, everything now uh, can incorporate a sensor of one kind or another, which turns a lot of previously dumb and uh, analog objects into objects that are capable of understanding what it is that they do, and that are capable of processing feedback and interacting with the users uh, on some basic level. So we hear a lot about smart technologists, for example. We hear a lot about technologists that um, know what it is they are doing. right? We hear a lot about smart forks that uh, tell you, based on the sensors built into them, that you are eating too fast and they start beeping or vibrating. You have uh, smart uh, umbrellas that haven't been connected to the internet know that uh, it might be raining in the afternoon so they will tell you that you need to fetch the umbrella once you leave the house. You have smart uh, toothbrushes that again can monitor how frequently you're brushing your teeth and then report that data to your uh, insurance company. You have all sorts of smart artifacts that um, considerably behave somewhat differently from the artifacts we had in the past when we didn't have access to sensors. So the proliferation of the sensors in the built environment and in the artifacts and uh, uh, basically in many of the objects that we use is one of the trends that um, I think are worth paying attention to. And I'll name two others and then we'll uh, talk about what all those trends actually mean for uh, problem solving. So the other, the other trend, uh, which I think we need to focus on, is uh, the ability to basically introduce and carry your entire social graph and your entire social network with you uh, wherever you go. Right? So pretty much any interaction that you have with um, public institutions or any built environment or other people can more or less be mediated through your social network. Um, what I mean by this is uh, the ability to basically introduce uh, your Facebook friends, or so online friends, to um, anything, any decision that's facing you and incorporate feedback from them in real time, which creates new ways to uh, exert peer pressure, which when smartly used can also result in new types of motivations um, from uh, things like gamification, for example, right? Those of you who uh, have studied and followed this debate a little bit, you might know that this is a very catchy term in Silicon Valley, and it basically refers to the introduction of uh, so-called game incentives, uh, virtual points and awards and badges uh, into things and activities that were previously done for reasons that have nothing to do with competitiveness and nothing to do with gaming. So now it is possible to get you to do things Uh, by giving you points for performing tasks that you may have previously refused to do altogether or you would have done because you wanted to do it out of political or moral reasons. So there is a lot of, uh, in my opinion, bizarre discussion and bizarre debates happening in Silicon Valley For example, about boosting political participation in America by rewarding people with points for showing up uh, at the voting booth and voting. Um, You can actually come in and get your reward points simply by checking in with your smartphone. That's what, for some people in Silicon Valley, passes for uh, an effective strategy of boosting uh, political engagement. And we can talk about how bizarre or surreal uh, such a plan sounds, but again, it points you to the new kinds of motivations and the new kinds of behavioral modifications that have not been available previously, that have suddenly become available now. Uh, once all of your friends have become, you know, portable, right? You can actually carry with you, carry them with you anywhere you go. Um, So to give you an example of how these two trends, the proliferation of sensors on the one hand, and the ability to introduce and insert your entire social circle uh, into your interaction with the built environment, how those two trends come together, um, I uh, can point to a very interesting and also somewhat bizarre example, uh, a design project built by designers from uh, Britain and and Germany. Uh, It's something called Smart Trash Bin. And it looks like um, a regular trash bin with a twist. So the twist is that it has um, a smartphone built into its upper lid. And every time you open and shut the trash bin, uh, the uh, smartphone takes a picture of what it is that you have just thrown away. Uh, And that picture is being uploaded to Mechanical Turk, which is a site run by Amazon, Uh, where freelancers are paid to perform all sorts of laborious tasks that computers cannot handle yet. So in this case, uh, freelancers are paid to assess whether the stuff you have just thrown away uh, was recycled correctly or not. So they look at the photo, they analyze whether you've done it correctly or not, and if you've done it correctly, you're being assigned points, and that picture along with the points that you've earned are uploaded to your Facebook profile where they are available for everyone to see, and whoever wins the most points at the end of the week uh, gets the top award the, whatever among households participating in the game. Um, you might sound that this is very bizarre and, and trivial, and you know, I would probably agree with you, but as a way towards uh, problem solving, it relies on two new features of our environment that, again, were very hard to tap into before. It's the proliferation of sensors uh, in many of our artifacts, and it's this ability to bring your friends and to bring your entire social circle uh, into very trivial interactions, right, where you can start building new sorts of motivations that were not available before. To me, this is a very interesting example, in part because it shows how tempting it might be for a lot of designers and engineers to basically... um, continue pushing for more efficiency. And this is the argument that you, know, you can actually tap into this game incentives to get people to recycle more in part because uh, you're introducing these more effective uh, motivators. But to me, it's interesting because it's basically replacing uh, the old language of morality and ethics. And that was the reason why you engage in environmentally friendly and recycling behavior in the past. I mean, that was the motivation. You wanted to whether it was to save the environment or to avert climate change, the reason why you engaged in many of those behaviors was because you were appealed to the citizen uh, without much infrastructure, but that language and that appeal existed somewhere, um, and you acted based upon it. Now many of these decisions that were previously subject to moral and political considerations have been recast in the language of accumulating points or um, earning badges and it has basically recast many of the problems and issues that were previously in the domain of politics and citizenship into this new consumer-friendly language of uh, almost frequent flyer programs. Right, that's essentially what it is. You're accumulating points that are then become redeemable, regardless of w- w- what the behaviour in question. Uh, many people take this logic much further. So there was an interesting report published by Deloitte, the consulting firm, uh, earlier this month. And um, there's the trash bin project, was built by designers, and you can say that this is a bunch of crazy people who are just doing art, uh, which they weren't. It was actually a serious project, it was an academic paper, and they did see the trash bin as an intervention in ethical debates. The report from Deloitte is written by a serious consulting firm, supposedly serious people. and uh, their suggestion, uh, again, revolves around sensors and it revolves around um, gamification, but their proposal is that since prisons in America are um, overcrowded and uh, too expensive to run, uh, and since we have these wonderful sensors that can monitor almost everything, why don't we just uh, uh, you know, start imprisoning people at home basically without sending them to prison? Uh, In part because we have the excellent smartphones which allow us to monitor everything that's happening. You can have them check in with their case manager uh, through apps. Uh, You can have case managers monitor lots of people remotely through very nice dashboards. Uh, And uh, most excitedly, they also argued that you can actually build uh, some kind of gamification system Uh, into the app so that uh, the offenders um, can actually earn points for checking in on time and not leaving the restricted zone uh, and thus potentially uh, get an early release or some kind of other preferential treatment. So again, you see a very bizarre um, encroachment of this um, frequent flyer logic only that uh, there is no hassle of flying um, involved in the process. But to me, it's, again, a very interesting uh, proposal that only management consultants and Silicon Valley engineers could have come up with, uh, thinking that if only we could find a way to imprison more people at cheaper rates, we would solve the problem of incarceration in America. If you were actually starting from a different end, and you would start inquiring, well, what are the problems you're trying to solve, Uh, you probably would figure out that one way to solve the problem of incarceration in America is to imprison fewer people, Um, which, again, is more of a social and political move uh, that often gets lost once you have access to these beautiful solutions. Once you have access to these beautiful fixes, whether it's censors, whether it's gamification, uh, you suddenly stop questioning problems and how they become problems. And, you know, this problem of imprisonment and incarceration, I think, is maybe a bit of a cheesy example, even though it is to me very surprising that, you know, people working at a serious consulting firm uh, never bothered to address that question. But I think you can see that logic of identifying problems as problems based solely on the fact that we have nice and clean and shiny technological solutions available for fixing them at play in many other walks of life. So what I tried to do in this book uh, that I just finished was to see how it applies in many fields. How it applies in efforts to increase transparency and openness in politics. How it uh, applies when we try to make politicians more honest uh, and to spot them engaging in all sorts of hypocritical and inconsistent behavior. I try to see how it works in the context of fighting crime, whether it's in things like predictive policing, or there's some things like situational crime prevention, of which I'd be happy to talk more, uh, both in the lecture and in the Q&A. Try to look at uh, self-tracking and ways in which we try to um, solve problems of health with the help of smartphones and apps uh, and whatnot. Um, And it's actually a very broad um, attempt to try to tease out this very shallow attempt to see problems as problems. Uh, that I call solutionism, right? And I try to uh, go and trace it across uh, many different fields. So I'll just share a couple of examples um, tonight, and um, I hope we can talk about other fields and and applications uh, during the Q&A. So for me, if you look at Google Glasses, for example, right? So for me, uh, it's part of this emerging infrastructure for problem solving that I think uh, a lot of governments and a lot of policymakers will eventually get very excited about, right? And just think about what sort of things the infrastructure that has already been created by Google uh, allows us to do. So uh, some of you may know, and I'll return to Google Glasses, but I'll I'll give you another example that might even explain it even better. Um, You may have heard of something called Google Now. Uh, And those of you who haven't, uh, Google Now is an app built by Google for your Android phones, which basically monitors Everything you do uh, and everything, you know, every interaction with Google services. So it looks at your Google inbox, it looks at your Google calendar, it looks at any other Google service you are using, and it basically tries to make predictions as to what you might be doing soon, and it tries to help you accomplish those things. So let's say you have a plane reservation in your Gmail, right? And you have a plane reservation for later in the afternoon. Uh, so what Google Now would do is that it would automatically check you into your flight. It will uh, check the weather at your destination, and it will warn you that it might rain, so you need to take an umbrella. And it will check the traffic conditions on your way to the airport, and it will tell you that you need to live an hour or two earlier because traffic is bad. All of that is happening in real time without you asking Google Now to do anything. This is happening because it makes decisions and predictions as to who you are, what you do, and what you will be doing. All of this sounds nice, and this is probably something that I myself at some point would want to use to minimize the hassle uh, of of, of my travel, but Google increasingly also uses uh, apps like Google Now for more expensive intrusions, let's put it that way, uh, into our existence. So one of the uh, cards that it shows, in addition to all this reports about weather and traffic, one of the cards that it shows to users at the end of every month uh, is how many uh, miles you have walked that month. Right? It just, because it has a sensor in the phone, It knows how much movement uh, you engaged in, and it tells you that this month you walked that many miles. Last month you walked that many miles, and this is the change from this month to last month. And this is a card that appears on your phone without you ever asking for it. It was generated automatically, and Google thinks that it's the kind of benevolent intervention uh, that all of us would benefit from. Right? In part because they think that probably we need to be walking more and they have the means to track how much we are walking, so why not make that intervention? Um, to me, it sounds very much like a nudge. Right? To me, it sounds very much like the kind of intervention that a lot of uh, policymakers uh, who have developed an interest in behavioral economics would be very excited about. Um, it puts some responsibility on the shoulders of the consumer or the citizen. It tells us that, well, here are the facts. We still have the ability to not to do anything, but we are hit with uh, information for changing our behavior. Um, if you try to think about other potential applications of such monitoring devices, which we already carry in our phones, in our pockets, and soon with Google Glass we'll be carrying uh, you know, in our heads, uh, you can think of all sorts of other potential interventions that suddenly become available that were not available before. Right? Up until now, unless you went and decided to buy a pedometer or some kind of other tracker, there was no way to have an intervention on such a massive scale, right? even if it's just a nudge. Uh, with things like Google Glasses, again, the sky is the limit uh, in terms of the kind of interventions you can make. So you're wearing them all day and uh, the glasses know what it is you've been doing. They know what it is that you've been eating. So you shop at a restaurant, and the glasses already know that you fulfilled your uh, caloric intake for the day. So when you look at the menu, um, potentially, nothing prevents uh, those glasses from making certain high-fat value items disappear from the menu. Right? Again, you might think that this is science fiction and no one would want to do it, but that's a possibility this is on the table. Right? It's not something that you need to put a lot of money or R&D in. It's an option that if we decide not to pursue, we would need to articulate why is it that you don't want to pursue that option. Right? So what I'm driving at here is that we do have the means and we do have the technology of perfection in many fields. And that technology is getting more and more powerful. And if we decide not to pursue perfection, uh, we need to articulate a good philosophy as to why, and we need to articulate strong reasons as to why we wouldn't, make that, wouldn't, wouldn't want to make that intervention. My feeling, based on observing governments and policymakers in the last five years, or ten years, is that uh, given how little money they have for problem solving and given how excited they are about the world of innovation, Silicon Valley, TED talks, entrepreneurship, disruption, I can go on with, with the buzzwords, they would find many of these interventions very appealing. In part because it offloads some of the problem solving to Silicon Valley, and in part because it offloads some of the problem solving to citizens. Um, so again, uh, a very particular kind of politics is being implemented through these solutions. Uh, it's one thing to be told that uh, you're not walking enough or you, you're eating food that is not healthy through your smartphone, but it's a very different thing to actually go and create the structural conditions for you to be able to walk more or for you to be able to afford healthy food for you to be able to actually uh, have access to it without having to drive or without having to spend a lot of money on it. Right? Uh, a lot of problems that currently exist require much more ambitious structural reforms and things like the regulation of the food industry. I mean, we can think of lots of structural reforms that would be very easy to abandon if we do offload responsibility for solving them on the shoulders of the citizens and consumers and we just tell them that, well, the system is here to stay. Uh, You have these great self-tracking apps. What you have to do now is to optimize your behavior within the constraints of the system. What we want to do is to think of ways in which we can change the system itself. Embark on reforms. If it means that we need to build infrastructure, we need to go and build infrastructure. If it means that we need to go and regulate the food industry, then we need to go and regulate the food industry. And my fear here is that uh, given the overall climate of austerity and given the overall excitement over innovation, we might end up with a very um, narrow type of politics where uh, the only things that you can tinker with is basically, you know, happen at the level of the consumer. So you can go and decide whether you want to uh, exercise more, whether you want to eat more, but nothing would happen to provide better infrastructure, or nothing would happen to actually provide you access to more food and more exercise. But this is one of the concerns I raise about the uh, potential solutions. Uh, But the bigger point uh, that I think emerges uh, from all of this is that we need to be very critical about the rhetoric that is coming from Silicon Valley. Um, And if you listen to many of these companies, if you listen to Google, if you listen to Facebook, uh, all of them will tell you that they do not essentially see themselves as being in the business of just selling advertising. They will tell you that uh, they see their role as changing the world and saving and solving some of its problems. I have a lot of very explicit quotations from some of these executives, whether it's Eric Schmidt or whether it's Mark Zuckerberg, where they explicitly highlight how they see their own role in problem solving. And they do see themselves as essentially being some kind of new humanitarian NGOs like Transparency International or Human Rights Watch and not ordinary companies like ExxonMobil. Or uh, you know, Halliburton, for that matter. Um, and I think there is something... I mean, it happens for a reason, of course, I think. And it happens for two reasons. Uh, and one reason why it happens is that uh, it's a way to deflect attention from uh, their own activities when it comes to privacy and when it comes to um, data sharing. It's clearly uh, much more costly for regulators to regulate the likes of Google and Facebook if Google and Facebook are seen as essentially helping us solve the obesity problem, help us solve the climate change problem. Right, so uh, there is a reason why these companies would like to see in such a beneficial light uh, in the public eye. But there is another reason, and that reason has to do with boosting the morale of their own employees, uh, and uh, potential employees especially, because uh, Silicon Valley increasingly is competing for the same talent as Wall Street. And uh, because of that, they're all going after the same engineers and after the same computer scientists. And it's much better to frame uh, their work as a contribution to solving the world's problems uh, rather than to be seen as just another predator, which is how most people see uh, Wall Street. So there is a clear reason for Silicon Valley to be telling us all of those stories. To what extent... um, they actually are serious about changing the world is something I very much doubt. But even if they are, we have to go and start thinking about the limits of applying these technological fixes to uh, the conditions at hand. It's the same thing with gamification, right? Even if you abstract from the – even if you forget my previous criticism of – recasting political and ethical decisions, essentially in the language of badges, awards, and you know, all sorts of points that you're accumulating, in the language of consumerism rather than in the language of politics, there is another, there is another issue at play here. Right? Uh, very often, this efforts to gamify uh, situations that otherwise look quite dreadful and awful are uh, just attempts to make us feel... Um, Nice in situations where you know, we shouldn't be feeling nice at all and we should be outraged and we should be angry and we should actually be uh, thinking about uh, broader reforms and structural change and instead uh, we're being asked to enjoy the situation because it has all acquired a competitive element to it and we're all participating in a game, accumulating points and fighting against um, our friends and uh, competitors and I'm just not sure that, again, this is the right way to fix... Um, many of the world's problems, right? We do not solve problems just by making everyone feel nice uh, while uh, the underlying causes uh, are not fixed, right? And this is the kind of narrow politics that, again, I think, is smuggled with many uh, of those schemes through the back door. Um, You can make a very similar argument about a lot of enthusiasm about big data that we currently hear. One of the major selling points that big data advocates make when they speak in public, is that it would allow us to move from a world where we're obsessed about causality to a world where correlation suffice just because you have so much data. So you wouldn't need to go and build uh, very sophisticated theories. You wouldn't need to go and understand the root causes of things. You can just go and understand why certain things happen. Uh, not, not why certain things happen, but how certain things are correlated. Right? So you can go and investigate... Um, how certain uh, crimes tend to be committed by people who share or like certain things on Facebook. But the fact that you can go and investigate that certain crimes are committed by people who like certain things on Facebook wouldn't necessarily tell you anything about the root causes of crime. It wouldn't tell you anything about potential you know, race, gender, and uh, income inequality aspects of crime, and you wouldn't be solving them if all you're trying to do is to find correlations and then go and prevent people who fit your profile from accessing certain areas, which I think is where the future would be as we start incorporating sensors of all sorts into the physical environment. Right? So there are also politics that are attached to whether we choose to tackle problems based on causality, or whether we try to attach them based on correlations alone. Right again. To return to my early example about self-tracking and uh, obesity. I mean, if you think, uh, if you start from an insight, right, a big sort of insight that comes from correlation, that people who tend to walk more tend to be more fit. Right. That sounds like the kind of correlation uh, that uh, big data advocates would be celebrating uh, very actively. But if this is the kind of insight that you start with, uh, your most likely policy prescription would be that you should give everyone a self-tracking app, and you should give everyone some kind of a pedometer so that people can start walking more. Right? But you can also, again, think like, what would happen if you try to tackle that problem at a different level, at the level of causality. And if you tackle that problem at the level of causality, you probably would ask why do people walk uh, some people walk more and other people walk less. And You might discover that the reason why some people walk less is that because they have nowhere to walk to except the mall and the highway. Right? And there is no point in giving them smartphone apps and pedometers because they just lack the infrastructure, where to walk. Right? So the kind of solutions that you're going to embark on um, after going through a much deeper and longer um, process of identifying the root causes is probably going to be different from what you're going to see if you just focus on correlations alone. And my fear is that as all of us start carrying sensors for generating big data, which are essentially our smartphones, the temptation to abandon searches for causality will be even bigger. So again, we might end up settling on very shallow fixes to problems that require much more ambitious structural responses. Uh, and this is one of the major concerns I have with the kind of solution advocated by Silicon Valley. But there are, of course, um, many other, I think, more sinister elements at play here because um, there are many costs that come with such solutions. Even if you accept that many of the projects and many of the goals uh, that Silicon Valley embarks on are noble, we still have to find a way how to evaluate technological solutions and how to discriminate across them because – We can't just go on saying that social problems require social solutions. Of course, some of them do require technological solutions. But once we accept that premise, we still need to find a way how to discriminate between them. We can't just uh, uh, go treating technological solutions as a class in itself uh, without drawing some distinctions uh, across them. So one of my big concerns uh, is that... uh, a lot of this sophisticated technological solutions uh, come packaged in essentially black boxes, right? We don't know how they work. We don't know the algorithms that power them. So you look at something like predictive policing, which is an area that a lot of police departments in America are excited about. And it's basically the use of uh, algorithms and big data and data about crime, past crime, that happened in a particular uh, geographic zone, Uh, And what happens with predictive policing schemes is that you feed a lot of this historic data about crime into these algorithms, into this software, and you end up with uh, predictions as to where future crimes are likely to occur. And based on those predictions, you dispatch uh, police cars, and you dispatch uh, police units uh, to particular geographic areas, and their role is to deter and prevent crimes from happening. And if you look at some of the statistics about the deployment of predictive policing software, uh, we do see that the rates of crime do go down and that generally such software works. What we don't know is um, where do the algorithms that power the systems come from. We have no idea whether they already incorporate any kind of biases, be those racial biases or economic biases or gender biases or you name it. We also don't know what kind of feedback loops uh, do they end up perpetuating. So if a lot of crime goes unreported for various reasons, it's not reflected in historic data, and if you start fighting crime based on historic trends uh, and some of the data is not reported, you're not likely to allocate resources uh, to preventing crimes that are underreported or unreported at all, right? So there are clearly costs that come with using data, but there are also costs that come from using algorithms. And one of the things I'm trying to play with in the book is... um, understand what are some of the ways in which we can still ensure some accountability over the algorithms that we're using in these technological solutions without necessarily forcing companies to disclose those algorithms. Right? So one of the ideas that I and proposals I come up with in the book is to try to embark on some kind of an auditing scheme where we can actually go and audit some of those algorithms in the same ways in which we audit financial statements of many of the firms. Uh, And I know that that might sound terrifying of you, uh, to those of you terrified of the audit society and many of the other perversions of using numbers, Um, but I think that there is a strong argument to be made in favor of uh, introducing at least some accountability into many of these essentially untransparent black boxes. I don't think that a solution that would require uh, a private company developing algorithms used by police departments I don't think that having those algorithms examined once a year in a manner that wouldn't force the company to disclose the algorithms to their competitors or to the public at large would necessarily be such a huge burden. We actually see that um, in parts of Asia and Australia. You already see efforts to audit the algorithms that power high-frequency trading systems. So there are already efforts Appear inside those systems in part because we know what the costs are, because those systems tend to malfunction and cause a lot of economic damage. So there is greater urgency. But I would say that we need to think of ways in which we can go and examine algorithms uh, that, you know, provide a lot of useful solutions and fixes elsewhere. Uh, And you can think far beyond just the word of predictive policing we increasingly see copyright claims enforced through algorithms and through automated systems where uh, you have uh, you know, one piece of software evaluating whether videos streamed on one particular site uh, are copyrighted or not and in real time sending you know, cease and desist letters. Um, and clearly, often it leads to over-censorship, and those are clearly some of the areas where we can have a little bit more control and transparency into how some of those algorithms work. So uh, when we do settle on technological solutions, I think one of the considerations we have to keep in mind is just how much transparency we would be able to uh, introduce to, um, to some of those solutions. Um, another uh, sort of one of the big... Uh, issues I uh, try to tackle in the book um, is how we can actually try to build technological fixes and technological solutions in ways that would not just reduce um, complex narratives about our technology use just to numbers or just to uh, you know, calories or whatever other units and indicators you see in your self-tracking apps. So I've been looking at a lot of uh, art and design projects, uh, most of them for some reason coming out of Scandinavia, where a lot of designers have been working in what they call erratic appliances. Uh, erratic you know, meaning meaning, you know, prone to error. Um, and there the idea is that you can actually deliver some basic functionality to users, uh, but at the same time you can also alert them to the broader social and political system in which those devices and gadgets are embedded. So I'll give you a few examples Uh, There is, for example, an extension cord uh, that was designed by this group of Scandinavian designers, which allows you to uh, use it as a normal extension cord, but once you leave... And it looks like a caterpillar, which is a crucial part. So it looks like a caterpillar, and once you leave devices in that extension cord uh, on standby mode, uh, that extension cord starts twisting as if the caterpillar was in pain, thus alerting you that maybe it's not a good idea to leave your devices in the uh, extension cord uh, on standby mode and you should disconnect them. Um, and to me, those kind of narratives and being able to communicate them in ways that do not just reduce uh, the information to numbers uh, and make you actually think and question the system in which many of those artifacts are embedded, um, they are worth thinking about. And they are worth thinking about because I think this is a much better way in which we can get people to think about questions like privacy and questions like how much data they're sharing online. I don't think that we would be able to do that just by implementing, um, you know, greater disclosure policies. We would be dumping more and more information uh, on users. I think we need, and, I, and I'm serious about it, I do think that we need to turn to art and design and find ways in which we can circumvent um, and, um, some of the... Uh, great challenges uh, in alerting people to just the immense complexity uh, of the technological environment around them. And I don't think that we can anymore hide the consequences of technology use uh, from users, right? We need to make people aware uh, as they use Facebook, as they use smartphones, as they use other artifacts, as to what some of the long-term consequences uh, of their use would be. And if that means that we'll need to talk to them in some kind of ethical and moral language, that we need to find a way to um, to do that. And uh, that brings me to the question of self-tracking, which I think is one of the big ethical debates that we are likely to have. The way in which self-tracking is being marketed to many of us, and again I'm talking about apps that can tell you how much exercise you've done, or how many calories you've consumed, and they can tell you how much energy you're consuming. There are all sorts of self-tracking apps out there. Um, You can also think of sensors, right, which you can install in your car, and if you are a safe driver, you can then go to your insurance company, and your insurance company will give you a discount in terms of of how much insurance you're paying, right? So there are already schemes in existence which allow you, by monitoring yourself, Basically, establish yourself as a better individual than the average person that is assumed in most of the spreadsheets and most of the models uh, of our social institutions. Whether it's insurance companies, whether it's you know landlords, or whether it's all sorts of other institutions. Right? The the idea here is that you can proactively establish your reputation online and establish your reputation in general as a driver, as a citizen as a consumer, as, you know, someone who brushes teeth on a daily basis, and you can prove that with your smart toothbrush. There is this effort for you to proactively prove uh, that you are better than the average, and there are direct incentives, monetary incentives attached to it, because you will get better treatment, you will get more discounts, and you will get lower insurance premiums, right? And uh, the fact that such logic operates currently, and more, a lot of institutions got that, insurance company got that, Uh, medical companies got that. They're all building sensors. They're all building self-tracking apps that we would be able to use to prove that we are better than that proverbial average person. The problem is that once that logic becomes accepted by society at large, once enough people engage in self-tracking, then, of course, the choice no longer becomes optional. When when almost everyone self-tracks, or more than half of the population self-tracks, those of us who don't, automatically assumed and presumed by those social institutions like insurance companies uh, to be suspicious, to have something to hide, right? We already assume that we might have a health condition or we might not be safe drivers and this is why we are not uh, sharing the information that we could otherwise be sharing. And once those pressures are in place, we are entering a world where your decision to self-track fundamentally affects my decision to self-track or not to self-track, right? It's no longer just a straightforward decision by each of us as uh, autonomous uh, participants in the marketplace. It's a, almost an ethical decision that we have to consider and that we have to understand that there are limits and that your decision to start monitoring your car will affect someone else's decision to monitor and not to monitor their car. Right? And that's the kind of ethical and moral discourse that, of course, no one in Silicon Valley wants to have because the assumption is that, well, that will happen in 20 years and why should we care? And I think that we need to try to circumvent uh, that and we need to bring some of those consequences and make them visible much sooner. Because again, in pursuit of perfection, and in pursuit of better discounts and better deals, we might be uh, disadvantaging the weakest members of society, who again would need to either accept much higher payments that they are currently forced to pay, or they'll just have to disengage from a lot of interaction with social institutions. And I think it's actually it's a very big deal. Uh, and you see tiny elements of this already at play in uh, how a lot of our institutions operate. So uh, you already, if you look at Craigslist, for example, in uh, New York or in San Francisco, and you look at some of the ads by landlords who are renting their apartments, they proactively demand to see the Facebook profiles of uh, future uh, tenants. Right? Because they know that that's one way in which people already establish their reputation online and it's one way in which you can actually make a guess and verify whether your future tenant is uh, sociable and whether you know, whether they're a psychopath who might engage in some you know, murder spree uh, once you rent your apartment to them. Um, and this is not optional, right? If you're not on Facebook, you will run into trouble uh, and you will run into trouble even more and more as we go down this path, right? Uh, five or ten years from now, uh, it will be very hard to accept an argument that being on Facebook is optional, in part because so much in the social uh, infrastructure of how institutions work has changed. and I guess that as sensors become ubiquitous and as we can record more and more data about who we are and what we do, uh, it will become very hard to opt out from any of those schemes. So the idea that we would be able to say no, I just don't find it tenable. Again in part because our social institutions will make it very hard for you to say no and still be an active participant in society. So all of that is to say that uh, if 10 or 15 years from now we realize that, yes, this is what happened, we shouldn't act very surprised, right? And we shouldn't wait for 10 or 15 years. And I think we do need to find and start searching for radical ways in which we can make some of those consequences visible right now rather than wait for, you know, 10 or 15 years down the road. Um, I think. I'm running out of time that I had. So I think I'll finish here, and uh, I would be happy to take any questions on Silicon Valley or the limitations of some of these technological solutions, or if you want, even on the Arab Spring in my first book. So thank you very much.
0: Thank you very much, Evgeny. We've got some questions straight away. There should be a raving microphone, I think. So here we are. It, uh, if you can say uh, who you are and where you're from, that would be uh, uh, that would be helpful. First question up there.
2: Hi, my name is Anish. I should admit at this point I do a bit of data science. I'm a, a robotics, how do you say, amateur robotics developer kind of thing. So, mm-hmm. and I have first hand experience with Google Google Glass, and I know Ray, Ray and Brad and the rest of the guys. I have two points for you. First is regarding your uh, you know, assumption about sensors. Mm-hmm. I think the assumption about sensors is re- not really true. Sensors have been there for a very long time. The mm-hmm. real paradigm shift has been the ability to stow and to do compute at economically feasible scale. Mm-hmm. That's the first thing I wanted to bring to the table. And the second thing I wanted to highlight was about audit, audit of big data systems. And I wanted to point out to you that that is almost impossible because it's a probabilistic system. You can't actually say what is happening inside it at any point in time. Mm -hmm. I should admit at this point in time, I'm trying to framework some stuff around security for big data. So I've been very actively involved in the community. And what you're saying as a normal audit would totally fail, I can assure you now, as as it stands right now.
0: Just before Evgeny answers that, if you can put your hand up, you want to ask the next one, and then the mic can come to you before, so we're ready for when he's finished with that one.
1: Sure. Uh, So with regards to sensors, I mean, I agree with you that a lot of it does hinge on computation. And there has been a huge huge change in uh, computing power available. I mean, there has also been a change in terms of us all carrying mobile phones. So, you know, sensors actually all in our pockets, right? We can talk about how powerful they are, but they are far more accessible and uh, they're ubiquitous, right? So from that perspective, I mean, I do think that something else has changed. It's not just the computational ability. It's also the ubiquity, that potentially everyone who has a smartphone in this room is carrying quite a few powerful sensors in their pocket. And they're carrying it for reasons that have little to do with sensing, right? They carry it because this is how they use Facebook, right? And in addition to Facebook, they get all sorts of other uh, benefits. With regards to audit, I mean, I agree with you that when it comes to big data, it is very hard to audit uh, without... uh, you, know, you can't audit in, in theory. You need to audit in practice, and auditing in practice does require a lot of data. But you also have to understand that not all algorithms, I was talking primarily about algorithmic auditing, not every algorithm is fundamentally tied to big data. I mean, algorithms that I was talking about when I spoke about uh, automated copyright enforcement, right? it's not tied to big data. It's tied to how systems are interconnected. So to give you a very, sorry, I'll go on in one minute attention here, but to give you an example. So there was this, a big public case uh, last September. There was a streaming going from Hugo Awards, which is the science fiction ceremony, right, for for kind of Oscars of science fiction. And what was happening is that they used Ustream, a popular streaming service, to stream the clips from the ceremony. And they had all of the agreements. They were covered by fair use. But they were streaming the videos from the ceremonies through Ustream, a popular website. And Ustream hires a third-party company to police whether the video streams through Ustream violate copyright. And that company uh, tells Ustream that, you know, the video you're just streaming is a violation of copyright or not, but Ustream, instead of putting a person or hiring a person who can evaluate those claims and decide whether they meet the criteria of fair use, for example, decides to outsource that to an automated system which makes that decision automatically because they don't want to spend any money on hiring a human person who can make that decision. Right? This is not a question of big data. That's a question of how two systems uh, interoperate. Right? And that doesn't have to be the case. You can go and understand and, you know, and argue that. It doesn't have to be that way. You can also argue that the system that, uh, the New- that Facebook uses to uh, flag certain photos as n- nudity and pornography uh, you know might need some more intelligence, and if it cannot have some more intelligence, it should have some humans involved in the process because when they go and identify a cartoon submitted by The New Yorker magazine to Facebook which depicts Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and uh, Eden uh, and Eve. Um, has bare nipples on that cartoon, which is, I think, okay for Eve. Uh, (laughs) And Facebook bans it because they think it's pornography. Clearly something is wrong in the system, right? You don't need much big data to make the right decision here, right? Um, So, I mean, there are, I think, a lot of, in more and more areas of life where algorithms do play a role and that are not tied to big data, that we want to understand more, we want to understand better. And if companies are not willing to make those decisions on their own, perhaps we should think of some kind of an auditing system where we can actually push them to be more responsible.
0: Okay, thank you. Gentleman in the front. In, yeah, with the microphone. Uh, hi. Um,
1: down the front. Okay.
3: Yeah, uh, I'm from Russia and I work for a company that basically analyze, employs an algorithm to analyze user behavior to recommend people content that they might um, consume or stuff mm-hmm. that they might buy. Basically, a recommendation algorithm. And well, my question was that if I understood correctly your notion about how uh, sometimes people's uh, privacy is invaded. For instance, when, uh, when you uh, talked about the example with people on Craigslist yeah. analyzing people's Facebook profiles in order to see, yeah. try and gauge, you know, what kind of personalities they might have. Do you feel that if there would be a regulation that allows people to? kind of get an insight into the statistics of a person, into the data that a person carries with them, but for the person to be, that is to be analyzed to still remain anonymous, that probably would not work in the context of Craigslist and in the communications between person and person, but when it comes to police analysis and so on, do you feel that if there were a, reg- a regulation that stipulates that these people have to remain anonymous when they're being analyzed, that could perhaps employ some of the positivities of data analysis and all of these statistics and not you know, try to, I suppose, yeah. nullify the uh, rest. This is, for instance, what we do with our company. Okay, Thank okay. you. Okay,
1: thank you. I mean, I mean, in theory, uh, I mean, if you give me a few, like if you had more time I and mean, you could give me examples where such predictive systems would be useful, uh, sure. I mean, they're probably useful already when you're, you know, searching for, uh, you know, news and you don't sign in into Google and Google knows what it is you've been searching for and it tailors its results accordingly, even though you haven't signed in. I mean, by placing a cookie in your computer or whatever. I mean, so some of those systems, already in existence, uh, in terms of verifying your identity based on just statistical features. I mean. Uh, again, we'll need to talk about specific users. I just can't off the top of my head see uh, where w- w- it would be useful. And when I spoke about Craigslist, the idea there, like my concern is not so much that your landlords will be looking up your particular Facebook information. It's just that if you're not on Facebook, they just would not consider you at all. Uh, right? So it's not so much even about analysis. It's about a very binary decision of whether to opt in or not opt in.
4: Yeah, gentlemen, we'll think yeah, so I'm David Wood, and to make a full confession, I've been involved in smart devices, smartphones for more sure. than 20 years. You paint, very interesting talk, but you painted a fairly monochrome picture of the people inside Silicon Valley, sort sure. of suggesting that in almost every case, when there's a choice between a technical fix
1: or a harder bit of change to the infrastructure, they're always going to be biased to thinking about the technology fix. Uh-huh. It doesn't quite match my own experience, which is a bit more nuanced. So sure. are you just simplifying things there, or is it the case that well, it's, Give me an example of people in Silicon Valley concerned about infrastructure. Well, I think that the founders of Google, although they, they, they talk a lot about technology, they're also talking very much about changing society as a whole. Yeah, but they want to do it with their own corporate infrastructure, right? So instead of going and investing money into building the global digital public library of America, they want to go and build Google Box, right, which will essentially preserve that infrastructure in private hands, right? So, I mean, we can talk about specific interventions that they make, and often, of course, Uh, they do have solutions which often, almost always, require also using their own services. So when Mark Zuckerberg goes and talks about making the world more open and connected, what he means is that he wants to make the world more open and connected by having everyone join Facebook. Um, And he often actually puts those two into the same phrase. So again, I'm not saying that everyone in Silicon Valley just wants to build an app. No, some people want to build platforms. But it doesn't mean that by building platforms you'll be less dependent on Silicon Valley. or Those people will be more dependent because now you'll be locked inside, of, inside a platform. Right? So I think you've answered the question. but You seem to be implying that there is little hope inside Silicon Valley for a broader view. No, I just don't trust um, people with uh, essentially – private agendas and shareholders to be taking on problems that are presented to us as solutions to big infrastructural failures. So I think when it comes to information infrastructure, I would be far more comfortable with uh, a publicly funded system of some kind for books, for libraries, than I would be with Google, because I have no idea whether they would shut down that library the way they shut down Google Reader two weeks ago.
0: Okay, that's one to think about.
1: <laughs> yeah.
4: yeah, my name is Carsten Sorensen. I'm from the Department of Management in this institution. So it's clear to me that uh, I, I really like the presentation. I have bought the book. Uh, I haven't read it yet, but uh, it seems uh, very sound. Uh, it seems well-argued, and it also seems a very typical picture, of course, which is the role of social science, is to sit here mm-hmm. and really take the technologies to task. Uh, And in that sense, maybe it's Neil Postman's Technopoly 2.0. In that sense, that he made, uh, in many ways, similar arguments, uh, although uh, quite polemic. So the question there is, um, well, criticism has to be followed somehow uh, by suggestions Mm -hmm. to how we deal with it. Uh, So my question to you would be pushing you to try and say, so what do you think is one or two likely outcomes. So sure. one, one option is to have a, an evolutionary strategy where uh, we try to have counter-design. We try mm-hmm. to make, as you mentioned, the Scandinavian examples. Another obitu- uh, opportunity could be to try and foster um, sort of neo-cyberlogism, to really have the young generation uh, react against this. That would be, a, in that sense, a play to the market and, yeah. uh, and change, change sure. Silicon Valley because they would be forced...
1: Yeah, so look, I mean, I actually I don't think I share anything with Neil Postman. I mean, he has a great writing style, which I hope to emulate one day. But uh, I, I don't think that on substantial issues I actually share anything with him at all, uh, in part because I don't have an argument to make against technology. I'm fine with technology. By the way, I don't believe in the idea of technology as being a singular thing out there that you can refer to as a capital T. I just don't believe in it. I think most of those technologies operate on very different logics. That's why, you know, I have a whole very long chapter in my book Opposing the idea of the internet because I think it's a very silly idea that brings together not not the network Not the set of protocols the idea of the internet which for many people means that there is some kind of coherence to Projects like Wikipedia and Facebook and Google and we can all bring them under this one umbrella of the internet and decide that You know they all share something and we can then go and reshape the rest of the world based on what the internet tells us I just think that such moves often legitimate, but to come to to, to return to your question so if you, don't, if you do buy into what I've just said, that I don't oppose technology outright, and I don't think that it's actually a very useful uh, way to put things, then you can think about ways in which you can put big data and sensors together in a way that will expand human decision-making and potentially open up new spaces even for moral decision-making and for moral um, uh, you know, consideration. So one of the examples I give in the book is the design of smart parking systems. So you look at America, how do smart parking systems function? So you have a parking meter which has sensors built into it, and once your car lifts the parking spot, even if you have some money remaining on uh, the meter, uh, the sensor knows that your car has left the spot, so it will just cancel whatever money is left and transfer the money to the uh, town hall. Right? Uh, And that's one use of sensors. But you can think of many other uses of sensors. So, you know, you might be living the spot. The sensor knows that you're living the spot, and you'll be presented with a choice. You can either, based on big data analysis, we know that people who tend to park in this spot belong to this particular, uh, you know, income group and that they happen to be poor people driving very poor cars. And you have a choice. You can either donate money to uh, those people or you can donate money to the town hall. So here you go. With the use of a sensor, you actually expand scope for morality and moral decision-making. And where you didn't have a choice, and where you didn't have an option of becoming a more you know, moral person, you suddenly have one. I'm not saying that that will help to solve the congestion problem, which is how a lot of smart parking systems are being advertised to us, but it's a different configuration, and if we as a society decide that we actually want to go for expanding morality rather than solving congestion, that would be a very useful trade-off. But what I'm trying to do with a lot of the arguments in the book is not to tell us how we can use gamification better. Like, I think it's just not a legitimate move. We shouldn't be using gamification altogether. And we should be able to see it for the political project that it is, and not just for the efficient fix, which is how Silicon Valley presents it to us. It does come with costs, and there is no reason why I should be spending my time thinking how to make gamification better. I just find it evil, and this is what I want to oppose. But not because it relies on technology, but because it relies on very bizarre, consumer oriented, neoliberal fix to problems that need to be tackled differently.
0: Thank you.
5: Hi there. Um, my name is Kira. Thank you for a really interesting talk. Um, I must admit, I have no experience of smartphones, data analysis, and so on. But you will. what I found really. <laughs> You know uh, what the average consumer probably has, um, but what I found really interesting was the last part where you were talking about um, almost not the ramification but the punishment almost perspective of the internet is that other people using internet is forcing me to use it in the same way, otherwise there might be suspicions of mm. you know what are you not telling us um, So my question is that it, is there a sense do the decision makers and the people who work in these technologies have the understanding that there is a lot of scope for misuse in the sense that if that landlord wants to see my Facebook profile, whether they're going to rent a flat to me or not, I can put into that Facebook profile whatever I want. Um, there's already been cases where people create false identities sure. online and use it for several purposes. Yeah, yeah. So um, within, I don't know if you discussed this topic mm-hmm. in your book, yeah, yeah. but um, how does this sit within the sort of the solutionism yeah. that is talked about.
1: I mean, look, you have um, you have a very interesting background to many of these discussions about identity. And the background is that people who run the platforms through which you're being verified, uh, that is Facebook and Google, are not interested in you having a fake identity. And that's why uh, throughout, you know, in, in the last four or five years, both Facebook and Google have made sustained efforts to... Ensure that you use Facebook and Google under your real name, and they, you know, if they have suspicions, they will ask you for a copy of your ID, uh, and they would want to make sure that you're not violating uh, any of their uh, any of their terms and conditions. So that rule is embedded uh, at that very level. Uh, whether people building, so again, the question here is whether you know landlords know that you can be setting up Facebook fake profiles. Probably yes. Uh, Yeah, I mean, look, I I do believe that there is space for resistance, so I mean, if you do want to go and start confusing the social institutions you interact with and try to give them the wrong idea about who you are, I mean, you clearly have still some space for this. It's just that you have to understand that the logic in which our institutions now operate is the exact opposite. They want you to claim who you are because claiming who you are will entitle you to benefits that you will not receive otherwise. I mean, now you go and try to start a new account on Spotify in order to listen to music. You cannot unless you already have a Facebook account, right? I mean, there are clear, you know, this is not really marketed as a benefit. You don't even have an option, right? I mean, it it has reached that level. But a lot of this logics of self-disclosure, I mean, there are incentives to disclose, and that's why we disclose. So, I mean, yes, there is scope for resistance, uh, but um, you have to understand that most of the efforts that policymakers and activists have put you know, in, in, out in the last few decades were focused on two things. They were focused on protecting privacy through basically uh, passing tighter laws and building tools that will allow you to remain anonymous. Right? So we'll be building tools like Tor, and we'll be building all sorts of browser extensions that will help you to cover your tracks online. But if you are sh- if shifting to a different logic where it's in your interest to disclose who you are and where you are, Neither laws nor tools help you because they're not in your best interest, right? And this is where people who are most vulnerable will will suffer the most.
0: Thank you.
2: Um, I've uh, rather changed my question based on the last answer I heard, so it might not be worded very well. Um, You say that the companies that hold these profiles for you don't have any invested interest in giving you an anonymous profile or one that's uh, false, the fact that you can't sign up for Spotify if you don't have a Facebook account and then Facebook makes sure that you are you. Yeah. Y- you have no right as a human being to a Spotify account. Similarly, you have no right as a human being to be let by any particular landlord if they decide not to. Yeah. I think the problem surely only arises if you're denied healthcare or benefits or sure. something that's much more fundamental to existing. Uh-huh. Is there any sign of that happening in the world?
1: But I, just, I just refuse to, to sort of accept that logic that we shouldn't be engaging in some kind of normative critiques of how society operates just because those things are not human rights. I mean, there are such things as intellectual privacy, for example, that, you know, I have a right to go and read books anonymously without anyone knowing what it is I'm reading. That's how we have thought about intellectual freedom for a very long time. Uh, and I'm not sure that that's the kind of feature of the intellectual environment that we currently inhabit that is going to survive for the next five or ten years as we transition to new reading devices and as we transition to, uh, you know, uh, new forms of consuming information. It doesn't mean that this is a right, but, you know, I don't think that we should just say that just because it's not a right. We shouldn't be thinking about the broader structural conditions in which humans consume information or interact with insurance companies who interact with libraries who interact with one another, right? Just because... uh, you know something is not right doesn't mean that we can't see a difference between a world where you can read anonymously and a world where you cannot read anonymously. Right? I think to me that difference is pretty obvious. Uh, it might not be obvious to others, but I mean, but to make that argument, we really need to go to the basics of democratic theory and start articulating how privacy enables autonomy, how autonomy allows you to pursue all sorts of independent projects. I mean, it will. It's a much longer argument to make, but that difference, to me, is, is, is clear, and you can make it if you want to engage in theoretical debate. Okay.
3: Yeah, my name is David. And my question is about the, the uh, Craigslist user asking for the Facebook account for another uh, Craigslist yeah. user. Don't you think it's more like reputation that the same way where, where people were asking for bank account or sure. for references before Internet? just to obtain a reputation to understand what kind of person is it and make a decision upon this reputation.
1: No, no, I mean, I'm totally agree with you That's all about reputation. It's just that, you know, you need to take proactive steps to manage it, and managing your reputation these days requires engaging in a lot of this proactive self-tracking behavior. I mean, next it will be, you know, you'll need to provide data that you're brushing your teeth every day.
3: Well, and, and it's fine. If it's a sort of a reputation, then it's fine. It doesn't actually change something that we didn't used to do before, right? It's just making – having – another way to promote your reputation, the right reputation that you have. So so other part of, with you communicate, make the right decision. No, I wouldn't, I wouldn't,
1: no, again, often we are running into issues where, you know, people who have certain weaknesses or who have certain vulnerabilities, whether it has to do with health, whether it has to do with dangerous ideas, like, I'm not sure that you want to make those visible. I think that, you know, certain interactions, social interactions, uh, if they remain anonymous, would provide more uh, opportunities for dissent and would provide more opportunities for people to take risks. And I'm not sure that requiring this total transparency about everything we do and everything we are and making it part of some overall reputational profile will be a good thing, in part because... Uh, you will end up with people who are better off and who have the resources to spend, proactively shaping their reputations in ways that you wouldn't be able to afford. I mean, you already see it with search engine optimization. If you have $10,000 $10, to spend on your reputation every month, believe me, you can manipulate probably five or ten first uh, search results that appear for a name on Google which is not an option available to most of us who don't have $10,000 to spend every month on proactive reputation management. Uh, And once you start entering this uh, territory, then, again, you're creating all sorts of imbalances that I'm not sure should exist. You already have Wall Street bankers turning to reputation consultants to manage their search results, and I'm not sure that this is such a good thing. And I'm not sure that we want to... uh, uh, force everyone to proactively manage their reputation because again <laughs> that will mean that even more money will end up in Silicon Valley where all of those reputation consultancies are based.
0: Okay. Gentleman.
1: Hi.
6: I'm, I'm James. I've got a direct connection because I work in big data and insurance, but that's not what my question is about. I'm more interested in the comments you made earlier on about people's motivation for making decisions yes. or I suppose as economists might put it, their incentives. Mm-hmm. And i I think you, you made the point, you, you expressed concern about the fact that people might apply less moral and political decision-making mm-hmm. that they should, than they yes. should, and I actually, I question whether that's a bad thing. You know, on, sure. on the serious point you made about, uh-huh. about the environment, I wonder if, we, if we're depending on people, on the vast majority of people to recycle because they've got to make a political and moral decision every time they do that, yeah. then, then we're not going to save the world and people have got to recycle because actually it's custom and it's habit and it's what everyone does, and it's, sure. it's something you do without, without mm-hmm. thinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, and on the, uh, on the sort of slightly perhaps less important issue about walking, <coughs> uh, you seem to claim that people might be motivated to want to walk more, but that wouldn't deliver the nice streets for them to walk on. And my question would be, what what will deliver the nice streets for them to walk on? Is it, is it some, you know, enlightened... Some enlightened highways authority. I suspect not. Yeah, when sure. Will okay. will get nice streets is because people want to walk more. Right. Yeah, maybe gamification is not a good way to do that. I suspect it might not because I suspect the games will be passing
1: fads. Well, I mean, I think the last okay. the last question is pretty okay. simple. What will deliver nicer streets are investments in infrastructure, right? And when I when, when so it, it's incorrect to say that what I'm saying is that people are motivated to walk more. What I'm saying is that there is clearly a choice. Uh, of scale of reform uh, that we have to make consciously, whether we want to uh, offload all this responsibility on on the shoulders of the citizen and to basically tell the citizen that, well, now that you have the means to monitor yourself, go and optimize your behavior within your current road, your current street, your current infrastructure, or whether you want to engage in a more political project express oil there with other citizens and embark on the most structural set of reforms and actually make sure that there is infrastructure and streets where you can walk on right that's that's a choice and that's that's a difference in in the scale of uh, political solutions but to come back to your point about incentives um um uh, and whether gamified incentives might actually be appropriate i mean there is a large theoretical and empirical literature on what kinds of incentives produce what kinds of behavior. Uh, and there is a large philosophical literature on it as well. And I, I think my understanding of that literature is that when you start introducing incentives that have to do with reward systems, whether those reward systems rely on cash or whether they rely on the reputation or whether they rely on virtual cash, uh, very often, people are less willing to do things than they are when you appeal to them through the language of citizenship and the language of politics. We have lots of examples. You know, the villages in Switzerland, where you go and ask them whether you would accept a nuclear waste dump site uh, near your village, and you tell people that. You should do it because that's what citizenship requires, and you have 60% of people saying, okay, we'll take it. And then you go and offer them the same option, but say we'll pay you a compensation in cash. And then the rates drop and only half of the people accept. I mean, there are clearly uh, other consequences to framing these issues as essentially being decisions about money or rewards or reputation and not being issues about politics. Because once you start relying on those incentives – You'll probably have to rely on them everywhere. So once you start gamifying uh, uh, the reasons why people show up at the voting booth, uh, then I'm not sure you can count on those citizens to go and you know pick the litter that they see lying on the pavement unless there is an incentive in place that will compensate them for engaging in that behavior, right? And again, those I'm not saying that in every single outcome and in every single situation you will end up with sort of this complete degradation and the intrusion of market norms into every walk of life. But Silicon Valley and people who are preaching for gamification are not even bringing those concerns to the table at all. They're just saying that all that matters is maximizing efficiency and maximizing performance in one walk of life as if those were completely unconnected to each other. And I just think that we have only one set of citizens – We don't have those fungible citizens that economists play with when they talk about hypothetical case studies. I mean, those are the same citizens, and we all inhabit multiple walks of life. And once you start playing with what set of incentives in one walk of life, you might end up having to institute them in many others. So my only... Uh, critique of gamification here is that we need to bring some of those concerns that we know about from literature on incentives and literature on markets to discussions of gamification, and Silicon Valley has been consistently resisting uh, those discussions. That essentially is all I'm saying.
7: Okay. Okay. Hi. Uh, my name is Katrina. I work for a company called Contagious, uh, and we mostly concentrate on marketing, but I think this is a really interesting and important discussion to be having, Uh, And I also agree that there's a lot to hate about gamification. Um, What strikes me though is that, uh, you know, we talk about Silicon Valley a lot. They move very, very fast and they're very, very good at technology. And we're talking a lot about governments who seem to move very, very slowly and seem to be achingly bad with technology at almost every turn. In fact, most of the people who are, who are good at technology and involved with government are involved with getting people elected or re-elected. Those are the guys who sure. understand data. I'm just wondering, how do you find some kind of middle ground, some kind of bridging method to allow the two bodies to work together more effectively to address some of the questions that you've raised?
1: Um, I mean, I don't really have a good answer. I mean, if, 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 <laughs> if, if, if I had an answer, with would be running some kind of a think-thing. Uh, I, I, I don't. Uh, and You know, on the one hand, like, I'm not sure it's such a bad idea that governments do not check every single application that comes out of Silicon Valley. Because I would actually want governments to, you know, get things done and not just sit there and play with apps. Um, so, I mean, I mean, I know that we all love innovation, but, you know, a lot of it is completely pointless, right? Uh, and in Silicon Valley, you know it very well when you go to South by Southwest or, you know, the that conference. Uh, so, you know, I'm not as worried as you are, probably, about the mismatch. And I, I, I have very little to say about specific procedural mechanisms uh, through which, you know, you should ask people who do politics and not me uh, how, how that can be accomplished.
8: Okay, at right to the top, please. Um, yes, Toby Glenn. I'm an alumni of the college. Um, my question is, do you think it should, uh, Facebook should be uh, forced by the regulators to make it easier to terminate your Facebook account? Because... I terminated my Facebook account and it was incredibly difficult to do yeah. and it's a short answer obvious. the answer
1: is yes
0: <laughs> not by me I hasten to add because so I can't do it even if I wanted to which I haven't got a view on um, where did we go? There in the middle, yeah. Thanks.
8: I'm Christian Fuchs. I'm Professor of Social Media at the University of Westminster. Nice listening to you, Evgeny. I was reminded of a book by Stuart Hall, uh, Policing the Crisis, published in 78, where Stuart Hall is writing how the economic crisis in the mid-70s resulted in the desire to control. Uh, and uh, what, what happened It was a kind of uh, emergence of a discourse where immigrant, uh, black immigrant youth in the UK were scapegoated uh, as being criminals. Uh, and the solution uh, it was suggested more surveillance, which was databases uh, back then, and the law and order disc- uh, d- uh, dis- uh, discourse. And I think the solution is technologies. Uh, the context in which it take- takes place might be exactly the economic crisis. Uh, today. Uh, And it could also be, um, Stuart Hall was talking about something called diviancy amplification spiral, which means, applied to solutionist technologies that they might uh, uh, amplify the problems or amplify the non-problems into problems or existing problems uh, into problems that get worse. So this would mean, as an an example, if I have the Google glasses and they delete uh, something from the menu, uh, you know, uh, the, the unhealthy food I might, and I find it out. I put down my glasses. I find it might find it really annoying, and then I eat the unhealthy food and a, uh, <laughs> as a consequence, you have more obesity uh, and not, uh, and, uh, and not less or the, in the example uh, of the predictive uh, poli- pol- policing if uh, racist stereotyping is built into the algorithm and uh, was, as a, and more police is put into a certain uh, uh, area and uh, black people are more harassed by the by the uh, by the by the uh, by the police they might feel annoyed by it uh, and deviant behavior or criminal behavior might be amplifi- uh, might be amplified and so if but if this is the if this is the if this is the case yeah, and mm-hmm. the problems get worse then the question is what's the Solution to it. And you were saying. Okay, uh, okay. can prob- we keep it to the question? Yeah. Sorry, thank You're you. You were saying the problem is not the technology, definitely, but you were saying the problem is the neoliberal fix. And might it not be that we should S- sure. decenter the attention from the technology and start centering our attention on the societal problems like class inequality, bureaucratic yeah. managerialism, and capitalism? Okay, yes. thank uh, you. That's a great
1: question. So. Uh, I mean, look, I agree with you that there is a broader intellectual uh, climate and background to many of these decisions that, for simply reasons of time, I couldn't get into. I mean, there is clearly a reason why there is a sudden interest in nudging and behavioral economics across the board and Western governments, right? It doesn't just drop from the sky. uh, And, you know, it's not just because we suddenly discovered that there is such a thing called psychology and neuroscience and we can tap into it. I mean, there are clearly uh, intellectual Contexts uh, that need to be understood here, and there is also clearly a certain sense of excitement about having the private sector take on some of the responsibilities of problem solving, and uh, some of it have to do with a lot of um, decision makers. I think learning false lessons from this idea of the internet, where you know they think that you can run the government the way uh, Apple runs uh, the App Store, where you can just have the government provide the platform, and then the private sector step in and provide the solutions in the form of apps. I mean, there are all sorts of metaphorical, uh, bad metaphorical moves at play here. And if you start sort of following some of the metaphors closely, you will see that the entire idea of the Internet, I think, is is exercising a very corrupt influence on how we uh, think about social change. But the broader point you're making, that many of these fixes will make problems worse, I mean, I agree with you also completely. We have some interesting evidence about uh, how uh, the proliferation of databases that report crime uh, in the open actually result in people under-reporting crime because they don't want their property values to go down. Okay. Right, so uh, knowing that... Uh, You know, the more crime they report in their neighborhood, the harder it would be to sell the houses. Many people just don't report the crimes, right? And then the question is, how do we build databases that would allow some kind of reporting but would not necessarily affect negatively uh, the property values, which is a big question that might have to do with anonymization and so forth. But an even broader, I think, response to your question, sort of what the solution is, um, I think it's and it's a very boring theoretical answer, but it's seeking new ways of r- representing people affected by the problem, right? It's not just having Silicon Valley decide on what counts as the right way to fix obesity. It's finding, uh, you know, finding a way to actually listen to people who know something about obesity and who are affected by it and uh, uh, having some way to articulate uh, a whole bunch of concerns that tend to get lost once you have a bunch of people sitting in Silicon Valley building an app, uh, you know, try, try to come up with a solution. I know it's a very boring and standard answer, but I, I don't see any other way to figure out how should we go about defining problems as problems.
0: Okay, thank you. From, from um,
5: my hi, my name is Dasha. Um, my question is more directed about, towards your first book. Uh-huh. I'm also from Belarus, and um, I was just thinking, there has been so much more awareness through the use of social networks about sure. the situation. And I do agree with most of your points, but do you still think there could be no change because of this awareness, or?
1: Did they ever think there could be no change?
5: I mean, it just in your Facebook, it seems that through social networks, we can't really create substantial change. So I was just wondering if you think- But yeah, I
1: think a lot of people do need some kind of bizarre, neopostmanesk, what's the right word, Postmanesque or postmanish, um, messaging in, into my think thought. I mean, I'm not against social networks, per se. I don't think that there is something evil about the internet. I use it all the time. I don't think there is anything yeah. evil about smartphones. Great. I mean, you want to use it? Use it. But, you know, you should use it with knowledge that uh, most of those services and platforms uh, do contain currently powerful uh, ways for more powerful actors to use them for their own purposes, whether it's surveillance or propaganda or censorship or denial of service attacks or, you know, you name it. All of those options are there and we need to find way in which to minimize, you know, to tie their hands, right? I don't want... Western technology companies to be selling surveillance software to Syria or to Belarus or to to Iran, right? And this is something that you can easily prevent. And you can easily prevent Facebook from being more useful to authorities in Iran than it currently is. Those are all decisions that are up for grabs, and one of the reasons why we have been less active in solving those problems is because we did start with a very utopian and a very optimistic view on what the Internet could accomplish and how fast it could deliver democratic change. So I'm with you that many of those tools can be used and should be used by activists, and God bless them, let them use those tools, as long as they have a strategy and they know what they're doing. And they don't expect the solutions to suddenly jump at them once they have set up a Facebook group. Right? Once they're doing it with strategy and purpose, let them use those tools. And let's also do something to make those tools harder to use by their opponents, and you know, we can all live happily ever after. But that doesn't happen in part because Silicon Valley has a role to play, and in part because our own Western governments are interested in building all sorts of surveillance tools, which then find secondary uses once they export it to the Middle East, Asia, Belarus, and elsewhere. And this is not a problem you can easily address without discussing the limits of the surveillance state in Western Europe and America. Right? So, I mean, there are all sorts of problems. They're all connected in multiple ways. And when you hear policymakers from Western Europe and America get on stage and start talking about these noble ideas like Internet freedom, to me, they just make no sense. I don't want to listen to another lecture about Internet freedom. Like, I would want them to get on stage and tell me how they're going to regulate their own law enforcement agencies and the kind of surveillance they can do and how that regulation is going to affect what their colleagues in the State Department or Foreign Ministry is planning to do in Iran or China. Right? I don't want them to invoke this empty idea of Internet freedom to avoid the uncomfortable questions I want to ask them. And I think that you know, the emptiness of many of those concepts has allowed them to get away with many of those debates for far too long, and we need to be more precise, and we need to push them to be more precise. That's why I can go and put a subtitle of my book, The Dark Side of Internet Freedom, and make people feel uncomfortable, because I think they have been comfortable for far too long.
0: I think we've got time for one more, just over here. Thank you.
9: Um, I wanted to return to the questions around gamification. And when you were talking about mm-hmm. different ways of gamifying, particularly the example of prison, mm-hmm. um, it made me think there's something very infantilizing about gamification that we mm-hmm. um, can only imagine that people will want to do things for civic reasons that are based on immediate individual reward. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I think is alarming about that is twofold there's the sort of behavioral economic side of it which is, this is a very quick easy way to get people to do things that mm-hmm. are better for them and better for society but the other side of it which is that people seem to really like games and that gamification has taken off partly because it's been very well publicized and funded by Silicon Valley but also because people really like doing that kind of thing and mm-hmm. social gaming um, and I wondered if you had any kind of comments on the notions around kind of infantilization and, and perhaps a desire to infantilize ourselves, to take ourselves outside of having to make difficult civic decisions? Yeah, I mean,
1: look, um, I, I like the word infantilization. I mean, I should use it more often if I could only pronounce it. But, uh, you know, the, the the problem is that here you, I mean, it's not Look, I mean, BF Skinner figured it all out a long time ago. I mean, the fact that you can have, you know, different outputs based on different inputs and that you can build the right incentives to get people to do all sorts of things, I mean, it's not a new insight, right? And, of course, people who do gamification have understood it a long time ago. And, you know, by the way, I think that if you really want to come up with a patron saint for Web 2.0, it has to be BF Skinner and not Marshall McLuhan because lots of the clicks you do on Facebook and Twitter, I mean, those systems are designed in a way to make you click and check for new updates every five seconds. You you know, there is nothing natural about you needing to click there uh, every five seconds. right? <laughs> there is clearly an effort to make you do that. Um, so, I mean, I'm with you on that front, but with regards to um, – what was the second part of the question? Uh, with regards to – what was the second part?
9: Um, about, about how – a question about whether gamification is infantilizing, and that comes also from a desire for us to – Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, there's
1: been this very bizarre kind of, uh, again, confusion in in, in how we talk about those things. I mean, clearly, uh, a lot of people in Silicon Valley are telling us that play is natural. We are all, you know, people, we're all humans, and it's part of human nature, and we all love to play. But clearly, playing soccer is different from accumulating frequent flyer miles, right? It's a very different kind of game, and it's a very different kind of play, and when you lump them together and say that it's natural for us to go and accumulate frequent flyer miles, well, you know, in fact, you're talking about something like playing soccer. It's clearly a substitution of terms that is going on here. Um, So, you know, I think what we need to do is again to even the rhetoric of gamification here might actually be distracting to us because we do tend to think of games as something very nice, and you know why not play games if you can and if you can get the same things done while also playing game, I mean why not but if you 're playing game while also collecting points that you can then redeem into buying another latte. I mean, like, why call it a game? I mean, why not just call it consumerism, which is a much better language for what's actually happening? Right? But, of course, no one in Silicon Valley would want to, to use that term because it does carry far more negative connotations than gamification. So I think that it's at the level of language that a lot of interventions need to happen. That's why, you know, I've been so consistent in reading a lot of those extremely bad and awful books that come out of Silicon Valley. I mean, you just look between the lines, and you can see um, just how little sense they make once you engage them in a closed reading, right? And this is, I think, like, we need, we need more of that. We need to engage with even press releases. Uh, and this is where you can actually go and see that logic and action and point out multiple flaws in it.
0: Well, thank you very much. Now, Evgeny will be signing copies of his books outside. I think we'll be able to find their way. So uh, please go and get one if you want one, and he will sign it. Uh, And with that, thank you all very much for coming. Can we thank Evgeny once again for a terrifically interesting evening? Thank you so much.